0: Wilder, wilder, wilder. We took a week off, everyone. Thank you for your patience. We actually got a couple of people saying, "Wait, where are you?" You know that we're now that we're back to downloading every All Friday morning. Nice. Yeah. So sorry, we should have let you know. We uh, we took a week off. It's the middle of summer, and that's what we did. So we're back. We're back. We're back. Um, before we get into the series reviewing the White Lotus this week, I do want to mention. You know. The women in Afghanistan have really, really gone through a lot and are going to go through even more. And what's interesting is Women Make Movies has put together a lot of voices for women in Afghan. They've done a lot of films. A lot of films over the last 20 years were put together to document the growth and what happened with women before we came in and and took over Afghanistan and all the way through it. And one of the things they've done is through Tuesday, October 31st, you can go to women, it's wmm.com, womenmakemovies.com, and you can go to the Voices of Afghan Women virtual screenings, and all of those films are available to watch for free. So you can go in and sign up for it and see these films, and it's worth going and and sort of seeing what these women are going to be up against and what they've been through and how far they've come. And anyway, I just want to put that out there. I hope women make movies. can get. Ulster,
1: a- is there a place that people can go to help to donate to help get these women out of Afghanistan?
0: Don't get me started. I had a discussion with someone when they went to negotiate the exit. There were 47 um, men from America at the negotiation. Of course. And two women and 17 men from the Taliban. And what I keep trying to explain to people is, you know, when you see these cargo planes leaving, most of them are men on those planes Mm -hmm. because it's the military people who are getting these people out. And the women were working in the communities. They were not working with the American military the same way the men Mm -hmm. were. So they're not able to get to the airport, let alone, they can't travel alone, so they can't get to the airport. But there are lots of organizations out there, and I can't really tell you which ones to go to, but I can tell you that when you start to see these films, there's a lot of information in that section. So Women Make Movies has put it all out there, and I wanted to put it there before we get into The White Lotus, and we leave that behind for a bit. But anyway, I wish them all well, each and every one of them, and anything I can do, I will do to help them get out. Okay. So Diane, who everybody who's listened to Screen Thoughts for years knows because she's been a huge participant and she's back to listening. And she was one of the ones who reached out and said, what's going on? But she had sent me this text about, are you going to do White Lotus, which Hmm. you brought up and we decided to do today. And she goes, just finish this, Candy for the Senses. Visually beautiful, <laughs> could not good. get enough of the music, so quirky, mm. fun, and tragic. And so, on. I'm like, oh, we're doing it this week. Oh, great. And then I started watching it and I'm like, Diane, 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 I, I don't even know how to approach this, but I want to give you <laughs> three sentences on what I think it's about. So for me, it's about rich people uh-huh. as seen by both rich people and those serving them at a rich resort Sort of like with Kinda. a sprinkle, <laughs> with a little sprinkle of humor thrown in, lest any of us who have trust funds or a little disposable income want to slit our wrists before considering another expensive vacation at the ever-shrinking beach resorts available to only us. And then I have to laugh because it's written by Mike White, who, by the way, not only did he write it, he directed it, he cast mm-hmm. it, okay, and as his... Last name indicates he's very white and he's dealing with a lot of racial issues. He's dealing with a lot of things that are not just white. And I think it would have behooved him. I'm just going to say this out of the gate. It would have behooved him to bring in a couple of writers that might have given him a little more depth. Of uh, point of view from some of the issues that he raises, and he raises them well. I don't, I give him that. But that's part of our hubris is that we think we can see clearly what is now being placed in front of us around race. But anyway, so this six episode series is on HBO and it's going to test your patience. For how very, very, very white our storytelling is, and how no matter what we still try and redeem ourselves with happy endings for those that don't deserve them. So well, that's my take on it. Uh, you want to do your own intro, or are
1: you with me? You no, know, I'm gonna give it to you, Hollister. I fully agree with you on this one. <laughs> we never do that, <laughs> by the way. I, well, we
0: what we can do is look to have. Do you know this Brooke Obie? No, who's sorry? Who's that? Okay, so her Twitter handle, I'm going to read it out for you. It's Brooke O-B, B-R-O-O-K-E-O-B-I-E. That's her Twitter mm-hmm. handle. For sure, Screen Thought Lovers, go and follow her. And I'm going to send a copy of when we get this out to her. I'm going to tell you how she introduces it. Now, she's a person of color, by the way, and she writes on many issues surrounding film and color and race mm-hmm. and all kinds of things. So, I mean, she's definitely worth following. But The White Lotus is the latest HBO prestige dramedy satire on whiteness. Satire on whiteness. Mm. I had, okay. A mix of its predecessors, Succession and Search Party, The White Lotus centers on Rich, messy white people, their children, and one acceptably black friend, Paula, on a vacation at the titular resort in colonized Hawaii. Okay, great language there. The title is a reference to the Greek myth of the lotus eaters who indulge in luxury, pleasure, and forgetfulness rather than deal with the concerns of the world around them. That's her her introduction, which some of her use of words, I didn't have them in my vocabulary, mm-hmm. but she does because of her perspective. And I'm just gonna read a couple things she said for you to give some input around, Wilder, especially because you know you're you're much more ensconced in this industry. The black and Hawaiian characters, the ones actually best suited to critique their white oppressors. Through the lens of race, class, and gender, are sidelined to focus on the real story—the humanity of rich and powerful white people.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. I will say it's a well-executed, fun romp that's about the rich for the rich. And you know, I wonder—I wonder how much of this is leaning into the HBO clientele, and that's who their stories are for because that's who can afford to watch HBO. And I watched this and and it's beautiful, right? I I actually, I was overwhelmed by the score. Um, I felt like the score actually overtakes the dialogue. I'm wondering if it's maybe the settings on my television, but the jungle drumming and the insane staccato music that's building up this tension throughout the entirety of the show until the actual tension builds and we're suddenly faced with this very lyrical, very kind of hallelujah-esque minuet at the end. I felt really kind of, it it was supposed to be a juxtaposition for us and guiding us along this journey, but in instead, and I, I think this was purposeful, it shows us just how ridiculous our stupid problems are as white people. And I think that's ensconced within the narrative, but when he does that, In the first episode, you meet this great character, Lonnie, who is brand new. It's her first day. You know, the very first shot is these white passengers on this boat that are being taken to this resort. And Lonnie's very clearly a person of color. I don't know if she's native to Hawaii or we, we really don't know very much about her story at all. But over the course of the first episode, you learn that Lonnie is pregnant. No, no Lonnie's not pregnant. She's in labor. She's in labor. Yeah. And she's able to hide the labor for fear of losing the job. That is the income she needs to be able to have, to have this baby. It is shocking. And Lonnie has the baby in the first episode (laughs) and you never see her again. Again, she's gone and she's, One of the few Native characters, I assume she's Native, I I shouldn't assume that, but because she's disposed of so quickly on the show, I assume that she's Native because that's how they treat all the people in this show that are Native to the island or that are a person of color or in service, right? The only person in service who has a real voice on this show is Armand, who is a white gay man, who is the manager of the resort.
0: Okay, but here's what's perhaps even more disturbing than all of that. And what's most disturbing is, and again, I
1: got to go to Mr. White,
0: who's, by the way, been highly criticized in the press. He's,
1: he's listened to it, though. I mean, not, not hard to do when you've already been greenlit for season two. He
0: should have brought in writers who had a better understanding of the story he was telling. But get this. So at the end, I think you're right in terms about know your clientele. Because at the end, the only people whose lives are better for having been there are the white people. Oh, yeah. Every single person of color that was touched is devastated by the rubble that's been left behind by the hubris of the white people pursuing their lives, whether it's this woman of color who was so excited because somebody who was lonely said she would fund a potential business. I mean, there's all kinds of sideline stories going on, or the, you know, the Hawaiian, there's a, a native Hawaiian kid who basically is supporting his family, has no money, and he gets in so much trouble that he's going to be put away probably for life. And we never see him again. We never seen mcwell is it also happens at the end of the show but what's shocking to me is the only lives that got better were the white people and they all of a sudden had this epiphany about their lives and how to live it better and they had these epiphanies about uh you know how to do it and it just was so shocking to me that that's where they were going to leave it and that mr white felt that was okay
1: Well, I I will say when we're talking about a satire, and, and Mike White really is very well known for a satire. And I think he's an incredible writer. I haven't seen much of his directing. I thought this was well done, but I agree with all the criticisms that we're presenting. But I think that's kind of the point of his satire is that those who are well off will go on these journeys. They'll leave those who help them in the rubble beside them, whether they're a person of color or those that are native it's colonialism at its worst. Right. And even the really sympathetic character, the Jennifer Coolidge character who I loved, right. She's so amazing. She's so, real. She plays Tanya McQuad and there's even a conversation
0: about her name. Um, She's alone. She's lonely. All she wants is a man to fulfill
1: her life's, you know. Well, she's there to dispose of her mother's ashes because her mother loved the ocean. And the first person she meets is Belinda, who's a black woman who's running the spa, who helps her to feel better immediately. And she's overtly the most needy client Um, as she like shows up to the resort, desperately begging for a massage and halfway through the show, she just word vomits drunkenly to Belinda that she wants to skip all the bullshit when it comes to meeting a man. She doesn't want to do the first layer. She doesn't want to do the second layer. She wants to get to the middle of the onion, which is an alcoholic, insane woman. (laughs) And she's brilliant. Her diatribe is absolutely fantastic. Well, not only that,
0: you, we have to give it to her. Now, you probably, Natasha Rothwell plays the character. Belinda. Yeah. She plays. She's the- amazing. And you may remember her from Wonder Woman in 1984, but we haven't seen enough of her. And mm-hmm. I think she's had these small spots in, uh, in this TV show or other, but the woman is a powerhouse. And if they're yeah. like great great characters for people of color. She's going to be at the top of the list. She's amazingly talented.
1: She's fantastic. And it really digs into the trope of, and I, I apologize for my language here, but there is a trope called the magical Negro in storytelling. That is the black person within the story who's going to come in, dispose of their wisdom and fix all your problems for you. And that's who Belinda plays in this, to Jennifer Coolidge's character, to Tanya. Written by a white man, by the way. We see that she is just part of the carnage and the rubble that's left on the side of the road when a man comes into Tanya's life, right? When she gets the attention she's actually looking for. And it's so sad. And the satire there, there's a moment when Tanya thinks that she's doing what Belinda has been trying to teach her to do which is pay attention to herself and her needs and take care of herself in the way that she needs to which is what Belinda wants to do is start a wellness center to help people recognize these truths about themselves and so Tanya thinks that by taking her word back from Belinda which we inevitably knew she was going to do she's doing what Belinda has taught her to do and in so doing has left her as rubble and carnage on the side of the road used and spit out and chewed, went and handed a buttload of money over the counter because that'll fix it. Yeah. Now also we got to
0: talk a little bit about Connie Britton, who I think whenever I see her in anything, and she's of course, amazing. well, she's been amazing for a long time in a yeah. lot of stuff, but she's yeah. best known for Friday night lights. Yes. And here she plays a very successful CEO type And what she does so brilliantly is she gives you the sub story without one word of dialogue. You can see it on her face. You can see her disdain for her husband. You can see her anger, you know, even around her kids, not appreciating what she's accomplished or whatever. Mm -hmm. She is so good in this and it goes to show that she has again, not gotten the role she
1: deserved over the years. Well, she, you know, obviously we both fell in love with Connie Britton on the West wing no no secret there. But she does a really great job. There's a really wonderful dynamic between her and her daughter and her daughter's friend. Her daughter's friend is the acceptable black friend who comes along. I, I said that with air quotes, who comes along on this trip as kind of the best friend to her daughter, her Gen Z daughter, who's in college. And, you know, they're reading Kafka and Nietzsche by the pool. And these two girls are young and beautiful. And her friend Paula is she's a black young woman who is the only person to strike up a real relationship with any of the staff or the natives of Hawaii. Um, She's also what inevitably leads to the downfall of that person that she starts a relationship with, but she's the only one whose kind of eyes we see through of the, the danger and the, the sad real realistic look at how during the luau, these native Hawaiians are being paid to put on a show for all of these very wealthy white colonizers who came in and took their land from them and who are now being paid to dance for them. And Steve Zahn has a fantastic line about it that I was laughing out loud at, but I don't think it takes away the horror at which this scene unfolds. And I I think the dichotomy between the generations was really well played. And I I did really enjoy looking at that family as a whole. I thought the son was my favorite character. I thought he was, yeah, he was the only one I thought I had any sympathy for at all. By the way, every stereotype is
0: totally presented. Oh, absolutely. There's no surprise in any of these characters. And right down to her husband, who's not been as successful as her, who finally gets his manhood back after he gets to save her from, you know, something. It's just ridiculous. But that's the problem with White's writing. Mm -hmm. He got so much right. If he had just expanded the point of view by bringing in additional writers, and I know I've said it twice, I promise it's the last time I'll say it, it would have changed the trajectory of how this would have gone from fabulous to unbelievably important to what's going to happen next with racial issues.
1: Sure. I don't know that I'd classify it as fabulous. I certainly walked away from this show with a very odd feeling in my stomach going, there are so many perspectives we're not seeing from here. And I I understand that that's part of the point that this is, it's a middle-class look on an upper-class story, right? There are a couple of middle, white middle-class characters. There's Rachel, who's the new wife to her husband, who's incredibly wealthy, who is one of the most spoiled young men on the planet. And you see his temper tantrum unfold over the course of six episodes. He's actually who introduces us to this story in the very beginning. It's a little bit of a murder mystery. They lead you down a road thinking it might be one person who who is in the box of human remains being loaded onto the plane. And we find out through the course of the story who is actually in that box. But Jake Lacey plays that character. And... There's a scene at breakfast or lunch where he's he's wearing a Cornell hat, which I think is a, a nod to his time on The Office. Yeah. Well, um, he, he wore that on The Office. It's absolutely. They said it absolutely is. Yeah. And he was great. He just had the most punchable face. You just wanted to smack him across the face the whole time. But his uh his wife goes down a pretty significant spiral of did I make the right choice in marrying this man? And then his mother shows up. Uh, like the, the Great way. Molly no, Shannon. Which, by the way, you know that's part of the
0: satire. She shows up. Yes. And says, Hope I'm not intruding. Won't stay long. I have to come fix what's broken. You know. Yes. It doesn't say that. But those are my words. They
1: got the wrong room. Right. How dare they have been given the wrong room? Which, by the way, goes to it touches
0: on everything about the rich and shallow. It touches yeah. on friendships. Yeah. And the two girls, their friendship. It touches on marriage and it touches on a young marriage where the woman realizes, what have I done? What have I signed myself up for? It touches on a 25 year old marriage where they're struggling because of inequality in terms of income producing and infidelity yeah. attitude around money, racial class mm-hmm. issues, which is probably where he's least successful. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, even like, the part where he really sort of shows that they have these incredible scenes where Hawaiians come in and they're doing native dancing and they're doing, you know, they're, you're, they're blowing conch shells and, you know, Mm -hmm. it's right out of Lord of the flies practically. I mean, it's really showing Mm the culture that was lost. And basically he then points out that it's really Hawaiians, you know, dancing for their supper because everything was stolen from them and they mm-hmm. have no other way to get their supper. And it has such potential mm-hmm. you know, the satire and it's beautifully done. But he touches on what I think are the real issues around money. Now, one of the things that my new best friend who doesn't know me yet, Brooke Obie, um, <laughs> don't be upset, Liz, but, you know, God, I love her.
1: You know, I realize I actually did read her. I just didn't clock her. Yeah. Her Twitter handle. (laughs) And you're allowed to have other best friends. It's okay.
0: Okay. Okay, good. (laughs) It's hard. I know. I know it's hard. Okay, here's one of the things she says, but it's Lucy with the football. Yes. Before the nails even come out, the white savior jumps down from the cross unscathed. The Mm -hmm. rich and powerful are only more humanized, more excusable, if you will. Even if individuals change, the system of the powerful remains powerful, the system of the rich remains rich, and the status quo remains intact. And I thought it's true. You know, and so basically when she goes on to say that, If you really wanted to fix it, you have to give back some of the power and cash Mm -hmm. that is held by the white. Reparations.
1: She calls for reparations, which I agree with, but I myself am a bleeding heart liberal. But I I did find it interesting that at no point, and, and this may have been a COVID choice because they did shoot this during COVID, but at no point do they leave the resort. They don't ever go anywhere outside of the resort. They're in this beautiful, lush place. They're in Hawaii they're in Maui. Nobody drives to Hana. Nobody goes down the street to the cinnamon roll place that I know is right down the street from that resort. Cause I've been there and it's amazing, but nobody ever leaves that beach or that pool or their boat that goes out to take them diving or on a beautiful dinner cruise slash. Part of that is very
0: true. I mean, like if you go to Anguilla or my father actually built a resort in the Caribbean called Mullet Bay, no one ever left Mullet Bay either because there were seven restaurants, two beautiful beaches, mm-hmm. three pools, a you know, tennis courts galore, a golf course. There was no reason to leave because leaving calls for having to get in a car and waste time getting somewhere. In other words, everything was there so that every minute that you're there, you're living in luxury without any sense of having mm-hmm. to do anything. So I think it makes
1: total sense. And many of the resorts I go, I've gone to, I haven't left either, you know, so I'm not that kind of traveler personally. I don't do, first of all, I'm not wealthy enough to do resorts. Uh <laughs> But secondly, I like going and exploring. It's why I don't like cruises. I like going and exploring the city that I'm in and the and the place that I'm in. And not one of the people on this in this show takes advantage of anything outside the hotel.
0: Okay, now I'm going to ask you. This show, there's a lot of controversy around it. I mm-hmm. mean, in a good way, where people are challenging it and talking about it. I don't think it's any. I don't think it's negative. And I don't think White is taking it as negative. But it's definitely going to be up in the awards categories. Sure. For sure. Okay, who do you think is going to be tagged here? Who of the characters do you find were were good enough to be like? What? How did you feel about Armand?
1: Oh, I think he's a shoo-in. I loved Murray Bartlett. I think he's he, is, he if Murray Bartlett goes on this incredible journey from being a <laughs> sober middle class manager of this beautiful hotel into full. Animalistic debauchery—he <laughs> yep. gives into every impulse that he could possibly have, and he's driven there by mostly by Jake Lacey's character, but by the entirety of the system to which he serves. Now he
0: also played Cyrus Foley on The Guiding Light, and I think oh. <laughs> that, no, but i you know it's so funny—you rarely see some soap opera uh, actors getting roles like this. But I think he was—I think it was very helpful for the role. I do. What did you think? Um, I thought he was amazing. I thought he was amazing. You know, and I don't think, again, you know, I think Connie Britton's role, you know, I'm always somebody who says, wait, what's the degree of difficulty? I think we Mm -hmm. should be tagging degree of difficulty for characters before we decide who should be getting awards. But Mm -hmm. Connie Britton, it doesn't look like her character has a high degree of difficulty. But as I said, Everything she's really thinking is never said. So it has to be shown through her facial expression and her body and everything else. And that's why I think her degree of difficulty goes up. I think she should be sitting in there. I think Alexandra Daddario, who plays Rachel, who plays the newlywed, who all of a sudden realizes, what have I done? Mm -hmm. I've given up everything, including my sense of self. And again, none of these people really have been, you know, headliners before. I thought she was exceptional, but I don't think the degree of difficulty brings her there. Um, You know? No,
1: I did think, I mean, I think Natasha should be recognized for sure. Yeah. Um, And I... I just love Jennifer Coolidge. I think she deserves a nod for best supporting, but we'll see. We'll see what happens in that category. That category is always fiercely contested, but I I wonder I wonder how many of the cast was really dialed in to the satire. I mean, I I know that Jennifer Coolidge always is, right? Because she, that's who she's cast as always. And I don't think you can play the characters that she plays
0: but it's the same character each time, you know, legally. Blonde, Jennifer? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. But this had a depth to it that I haven't seen from her before. Really? Uh, I thought you could have transferred her from legally
0: blonde right in here. Would have been the same character. Totally clueless.
1: I mean, the scene, <laughs> the scene when she's on the date and she goes, I mean, full insanity. I mean, she's she's drunk as a skunk, but she goes full insanity and she tells this guy to get out of her room because he's eventually going to leave anyway. And she grabs her mother's ashes and she throws them at him and says, put them <laughs> in a trash can. I don't care. I mean, I loved her. Yeah. What was that? What was the um, best in show? It's a, yeah, you know, she's maybe- great. She's always kind of playing the ditzy blonde. But I've never seen her go. Her scene on the boat when she can't get rid of her mother's ashes. Her Her mother, mother, mother diatribe. I fell in love with her all over again. Well, I've always loved her, but I
0: don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I think she's got her shtick character down pat and I think she can walk it in. I don't think she's to, you know,
1: but it was. a Oh, I thought this was a lot deeper than I've ever seen from her before because she's, she's trying to hold it together at first. Like she's, she's got a veneer at first and then she throws it out the window and then she's got this weird veneer over the crazy. That's like, So many different layers of lying to yourself, (laughs) there you go. I was very impressed with, by the way, I think she may actually be
0: playing part of herself because Alexandra Daddario was on a talk show, Uh which one, and she talked about how Jennifer Coolidge sent her a text and said, you have to come over tonight. There's spirits coming to my house. They're going to show up. You need to be there. And she said, well, I can't get there early. It doesn't matter what time you get. So she got there and there were candles. There were all these spiritual things supposedly happening. And she sat there and the spirits, unfortunately, never showed up. So I'm not sure how Jennifer, I'm not, I have no idea. I've never really seen her interviewed. I don't know. Yeah. I, I haven't seen, I don't know that she's done interviews. So I should look that up. But I don't know how far she strays from home in terms of when she. What did you think of Steve Zam? I thought, again, I don't think the degree of difficulty was that hard. I really don't, you know. Sure. I thought he was good. And I think, you know, we've seen him in um, Sahara. We've seen him in a lot. Valley of the Boom, The Crossing. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mind Games. He's got, I don't even know how many, something like, well, he's got 84 actor credits. Yeah.
1: One of my favorites of Steve Zahn is one of his earliest, and he, I would be surprised if you've seen this, but it's called Saving Silverman. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's it's he, his ability to to convey dark humor, but still have that emotionality underneath it, I think is really impressive. His character goes on quite the journey on this show. And again, they're all first world, rich white people problems, and yeah. none of them are none of them are life endangering none of them are life affecting right he thinks he might have cancer in the first episode and he finds out very quickly that he does not because he's got nothing else to do you know right and i adore him and i think he brings a levity there's a scene where they're debating they're talking about the dancing and how paula's upset about it and he has this great this great like couple throwaway lines where he's like right american colonialism it's bad like we shouldn't make the natives dance for us but like welcome to america
0: well, and, and doesn't it look great?
1: I mean, you yes. know, it's
0: like, but I'm going to own own it. But the other thing is, I don't know. Do you remember him in Crimson Tide?
1: Oh, I haven't seen the movie in a very long time. Okay.
0: Yeah, I remember him in it. And he has acting chops. He just Yeah, has, he does. He has not been given the roles. You know, he just hasn't. So, by the way, we keep coming back to none of these people have been headliners, but they were all really great. They in were the all great. Roles. Yeah. And, and that speaks to the casting. So mm-hmm.
1: I just. I I think in its satire, it missed the mark of what it was actually because I think it becomes and there was an article about this, a satire of a satire and what it's trying to do, because it just so blatantly misses the mark of the class and race conversation it's trying to have. So there was an article I was reading, it actually may have been Obi who was talking about this is the same conversation about why white people don't want critical race theory taught in classes exactly. because it might make the white kids feel bad about history.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's like, well, we don't ever dive that deep into this story and God, God it's a me, shame.
0: Feel bad for five minutes, you know? Yes,
1: it is quite the shame. I think you're right though about um, Alexander Daddario. I think she's, she's kind of an unsung center of this. Her ending to me is so tragic and so sad. I I don't want to give away exactly what happens there, but
0: you've seen this storyline of her story. I'm not going to tell you what it is because you should watch it. It's really Mm -hmm. worth watching, but we've seen her storyline in Titanic. There's a scene in Titanic where Rose is watching a young girl at a table with her mother Mm -hmm. and the mother's taking away any sense of
1: individuality or teaching her how to put her napkin on her lap properly. I haven't seen this movie too many times. A form over substance, form over substance, you know, that
0: that's mm-hmm. what they were taught over and over again in those, in those times. And Rose sees this as her future too. Like, that she's been taught that and that's how she's behaving and she recognizes that her life is, is nothing. And it's, by the way, and it's the same trajectory that, that our fabulous character well,
1: here. Kind of. Rachel comes from more humble background, right? Yeah. She had to work her whole life. She's working, she's possibly working on her honeymoon.
0: Once you go into this higher economic class, uh, then there are certain ways you have to behave and certain things you do, and nothing else matters but how things appear, which, by the right. way, is, is somewhat problematic. But I want to point out that the casting, I think, again, was one of the huge successes of this series. And the casting was done by Katie Doyle and Meredith Tucker. They each worked on both sets of episodes. And they, again, are not necessarily people who have done the blockbuster things, but they did such a good job. So they've done stuff you've seen like Jurassic World. Um, midway, uh, you know, the young goal wins, but nothing, you know, sort of new almost. And then I want to point out that I've been putting together some statistics for screen thoughts as we're trying to make sure that we're also being aware of, of how very difficult it is for women right now and get this 60% of casting is done by women. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's not surprising to me at all.
0: It's the only thing we own a huge percentage over mm-hmm. the male uh, doctrine when it comes to who's who's making. So it's just interesting to me that we're very, very good at being able to take a character from the page and pick out who that character should be in, in the casting. And mm-hmm. I think casting is greatly undervalued, and it's also one of the things that is not...
1: Uh, Given an Academy Award. They're, yeah, they're, the Casting Association is definitely trying to push for that. Okay.
0: And I have to laugh because we have to point that out. So women uh, can't get an award for the one thing where we, we dominate that part of the industry and there's no award, you know, there's no Academy Award. Hey,
1: there are awards for hair and makeup and costuming, which women have a very big hand in. Well, that's, Uh, um, But, you know, let's not forget how Hollister feels about award shows here. I know. Well, we we won't even go there today.
0: (laughs) Um, We were also going to talk about Nine Perfect Strangers which has a similar issue. What's so funny is, you know, we're already out of time, you know, and we decided before we started this podcast that we would sort of skim over that. I think we do it another time, if that's
1: okay. I think we do it next week, but I think it's also, there's only three episodes out so far. They're certainly worth watching. But I think when looking at nine perfect strangers with our criticism in mind of white Lotus, it certainly applies at least so far in what I've seen of, of nine perfect strangers. Very interesting. I'm loving it so far, but I want to be sure that we're looking at things with, could this have been cast differently, right? Could any of these families or people been cast diversely without it having affecting the story? Yeah, we'll talk about that next week. So send in your
0: comments. And if you have watched Nine Perfect Strangers, it's definitely going to be five minutes of us comparing the two. But the other thing I want to point out about Nine Perfect Strangers is Nine Perfect Strangers has a blockbuster cast. We're talking yes. about Nicole Kidman where, you know, it's unbelievably strong in terms of who's on the screen.
1: Absolutely, and i got to yes. tell you,
0: I don't think it makes it better. Sometimes more is just more. It's not better.
1: Well, I will say I'm certainly enjoying the show so far. It's on Hulu. If you guys have questions as we're doing our reviews, I'd love to field them and see if maybe it sparks something different for us. But if you guys have a chance to take a look at it, Make sure you watch the first three episodes because it takes a turn in the third episode that I think opens up a lot of the show of where it's going. Um, It's directed by Jonathan Levine, who's fantastic. And apparently he's done all the episodes. So I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. But I will say there's definitely not enough diversity within this story for my liking so far.
0: There you go. Uh, so we'll talk to you all next week. Again, anything you want to send in, it's screen thoughts at gmail.com.
1: So thanks. Good to talk to you again, Walder. I missed you for two weeks. I missed you too, Hollister. Let's uh let's go watch some more crazy murder mystery stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe that tends to be our bag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. We'll talk to you soon, everybody. Bye.